Hey, hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Equalizer Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Kasouf, joining you this week solo, taking your questions mailbag style, and excited to get to a few different topics out of another busy weekend in the NWSL, recording this before a rare Monday night game in LA, Chicago Red Stars take on Angel City, so just a note there. Uh, I'll go over the results from the weekend and then take some of your questions that you tweeted at us um, real quickly. Couple of results of note from the weekend. Portland Thorns 2-0 over O.L. Rain in Seattle. Dominant performance from the Thorns at Lumen Field in that doubleheader. And San Diego Wave going joint top with the Thorns with a 1-0 victory over Gotham in New Jersey on Sunday. 1-1 between Washington Spirit and Racing Louisville. Houston Dash with a 2-0 victory over the Orlando Pride. And then the Kansas City Current with a 1-0 victory over the North Carolina Courage. The shutout probably as big as the result there for that team. So uh, one more, like I said, on Monday night, which will happen after we've recorded this. But wanted to get to some of your questions first, and I will try to answer them all. We've got a little bit of a, a time crunch, but appreciate you all sending those in. And um, obviously the U.S. women's national team roster is looming as well. The World Cup itself is looming. We're a couple weeks out from getting a roster, which still has some level of mystery to it, really, more more than I can remember, really, in previous cycles in terms of the number of players who have been in the mix, the number of injuries, the number of uncertainties on that front, and uh, really is going to come into focus on this pod, on EqualizerSoccer.com, uh, in, in everything that we do uh, very quickly here as we, we barrel through June. So um, I'll actually start there. Had a couple questions on, on the U.S. front and uh, a couple interesting ones because I think they do address some of the uncertainty around it. So uh, Pat Murphy was tweeting, if the World Cup ends up being a disappointment for the U.S. Women's National Team, what are some things we'll look back on and wish had been changed for a for a team that has often failed to click most of the roster and eight to nine spots in the starting lineup have seemed to be set in stone for quite a while. Uh, I guess I would agree to a degree on the last part. I mean, they've seemed set in stone. Sure. Uh, as we've talked about on this pod, it, it's hard to have said that because we've, we've made all these assumptions. I mean, up until pretty recently, we were assuming that, you know, uh, recent being a relative term that Kat Macario would be back, even if, you know, some level of healthy, right? Because she's such a game changer, you know, just as an example. And, and there, there have been so many of those scenarios um, where I think we've had this uncertainty. I mean, obviously, you know, you look at this prominent one with, you know, not an injury, but, you know, Julie Ertz returning to the scene a few months ahead of time, right? Not long after Vlako Nanovsky told us publicly that, you know, she probably couldn't be relied upon because the time, you know, time was running out, the calendar was ticking away. So, um, to, to the actual question point, what will we look back on as, um, you know, something that we wish had changed, not not we, but maybe the U.S. wish had changed, uh, if it is a disappointment for them? You know, very existential question, very macro. I, I mean, look, I think the whole point of that is you look at that rebuilding phase and you have roughly a year. It's it, Well, it's more than a year, right? I mean, basically end of 2020 is when that begins, beginning of 22, or sorry, end of 2021, beginning of 2022 is, is when it really picks up in full steam and the veterans are, are left behind. The, you know, the, the young new players, uncapped players all come in, they get their, they get their shots, some stick around, some don't. And, and I think, you know, 
to the point of Ertz returning, to the point of all the questions about what's this team going to do without Ertz, even as recently as this past fall when things did not look good against all of England, Spain B-side, and Germany. You know, I think the inability to to come up with a midfield solution sooner is probably one of those things, and and that'll bleed into, you know, I, I think that obviously a lot needs to happen here, and we're coming off of Ertz sort of, of some small injury that she was dealing with in league play here with Angel City. But, you know, we'll see what happens over the next six weeks once we get to the World Cup. But I would imagine things that signs are pointing to we're going to have Julie Ertz as the number six for the U.S., right? So what does that look like? You know, how much demand is there? How much pressure is there? Is that, you know, an expectation of her being the Ertz of old, you know, putting a bunch of minutes in demand on her. What does that look like? Are there consequences to that? You know, I think that will obviously link back to, and and this is not on any single player, because I think you could look and say, well, Andy Sullivan was sort of the replacement uh, for Ertz in a way. You know, it it took how long maybe to, to come around to, okay, well, maybe the double pivot is what's needed then, right? And that was basically January of this year. And you know, I, I think that could be a potential regret if we get to that point, if there is disappointment to say, you know, that there wasn't enough clarity. But I, I mean, I think the overriding thing here is going to be, it's going to be some level of um, balance of, of obviously you can't use it as an excuse because this team is too deep and too talented. And, and to the point that I just made, you have to be able to weigh, you have to find a way to make things work within that, right? But um, the uncertainty around injury. I mean, you, you look mm-hmm. at these with, you've got obviously Sam Mewis is out. Mallory Swanson, I think is, you know, you talk about things that would be regretted. I mean, I, I think inevitably you're going to look back and say, e- even if they go win the, the World Cup again, the fact that Mallory Swanson's not there in the form that she was in is, you know, a disappointment certainly for her, obviously, and and I think is is unfortunate just from a, a neutral's perspective because of how she was playing. So I think the overriding thing here is, you know, there's so many injuries. We've talked about this for over a year now. We're still talking about it on the eve of the World Cup. We're even adding people to that conversation as we wait for, I mean, Becky Sauerbrunn just came back for the first time in over a month this past weekend in that Thorns game I mentioned at the top of the show. Rose Lavelle has not played, might not play again until the send-off. That would mean months out. You know, we're, we're adding people to that list. They're, you know, Macario, we know, is not going to be there now. So that is going to be the prevailing theme uh, if we are talking about disappointment for the U.S. So I appreciate the question, Pat. Um, Ross asking, Do the US, does the U.S. women's national team, U.S. soccer, still control the team handling of women's national team players' injuries, recoveries at the club level? Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not, I don't think that there's some of that I, I think is inferring some things after that, but, but like short answer is, look, they're always working together. They do not control it in the sense. I think you might be alluding to Ross of, of, you know, in the days of us soccer, managing the league, investing millions of dollars directly into the league and running the front office, there were certainly a lot more say in, um, anything player-related, right? I mean, including at times even making players come back from Europe and play in the league, making sure that they're playing in the NWSL, um, you know, having a say in, in, I think, just having a more prominent say in anything, right? A little bit technical, uh, a lot of 
you know, business-wise, a lot of, um, you know, business-wise, even including some of the team moves, right? Um, I think there's a history there of influence. That's not so much this time around, but certainly, you know, from a high-performance standard, there's there's a crossover and, and plans between, you know, the U.S. and club teams. And inevitably, from the beginning of time, there's, you know, some level of tension to that, right? The U.S. might have a load management plan, a club you know, a coach, a staff wants to play a player, sees them every day, maybe thinks they can do more, maybe knows they need that player to go win some games and, and win a championship, build toward one. So I think inevitably there is some, you know, there's some consternation there. And um, yeah, I, I think, uh, but look, there, there's always a crossover. And, and that's, you know, you see that. I mean, I was mentioning Ertz before as an example, you know, certainly the U.S. is heavily involved in that, right? And that was they were involved with her comeback before she was even signed for Angel City. So, and that was at a high performance, you know, level as well. So, um, trying to keep with the the international ones here. Um, Julian Pena, I see your question. Any info on youth FIFA windows that don't line up with the adult? No, in a, in a nutshell. I mean, I think the calendar. I know I've talked about a lot. I know if you follow me, you, you know that I've reported on this extensively. Uh, the calendar at large needs a lot of work, and you know, I think. Um, I don't mean to say that that is a lower level issue, uh, lower priority, but, you know, in the grand scheme of what we're seeing play out this year, which was earlier in the year, the NWSL, uh, some internal fighting is the only way to put it. Eventually it came to a solution by the time we all really mostly knew about it. But, you know, we saw it in Europe here, clubs fighting with national teams about when to release players, World Cups, where do they fall? When do players get released? What is the NWSL doing about playing through the summer? These are these are really big questions um, that are not yet answered. And you know, for the most part, well, I, I don't want to generalize because there are plenty of pro players, increasingly so, at, at youth World Cups. But I think you know, FIFA windows are less impacted in the sense that you know, really, uh, at the senior level, you're talking about 100% of, of professionals and needing that FIFA windows. You know, it's not quite the same at the the youth level. But appreciate the question. I, I think that you know, there's a lot to figure out at the youth World Cup level period uh, beyond you know even the the windows. But um, I do understand a club coach, and maybe maybe this is what you're getting at of you know Alyssa Thompson, Jaden Shaw being eligible for youth competitions being pro players i mean these two those are two players fighting for time at the senior level right i mean thompson's probably going to the world cup jane and shaw no idea if she is she's certainly playing well enough to demand that look you know they're they're going to continue competing in the nwsl and getting ready potentially for a, a senior world cup rather than you know youth world cup qualifying um related to world cup justin uh how are things looking with team spain um you know I think we've we've covered this a little bit on this show. I will be disappointed not to see all of Spain's top players there, uh, if that is indeed how it ends up. I mean, obviously, this is always something that could change by by the minute, uh, by the day. But you know, it, it seems to continue to be um, an issue. And and look, I mean, I think I, just, I referenced the U.S. Spain game. Obviously, a very young Spain team that beat the U.S. gave it trouble and beat it in in the fall. Uh, but yeah, I think you know, it's, uh, I'll expand this out. I mean, unfortunate to see this playing out. Obviously, we saw what happened in France. Corinne Diac was eventually fired, um, and you know, maybe you can call that a solution. Um, but you know, to see top 
top world teams, I mean, World Cup contenders really dealing with continued federation issues like this uh, to the point that, you know, world, world-class world players are, are saying that they won't play um, is disappointing. And, and I think that's uh, the best way to put it in the, the brief time that I have here. Um, also, with so many injuries in this cycle, uh, any historical examples of lesser-known players who stepped up in a major way at a World Cup when replacing an injured star? Um, first one that comes to mind, uh, and it, I think this was referenced recently because she just went into the Hall of Fame. I mean, Lauren Chaney, Lauren Holiday was the, the replacement 2008 Olympics for Abby Wambach, who shattered her leg in the send-off game in San Diego ahead of that Olympics. So, and, and Chaney Holiday obviously did some some great things at that tournament and, and went on to have a Hall of Fame and a, an amazing career. So um, that one comes to mind for sure. Um, World Cup in general, not injury-related, but, you know, I just mentioned how Jaden Shaw is playing, how Savannah DeMello is playing, you know, 20 years ago and the only time that we've ever seen a player with zero caps get called into a World Cup team for the U.S., Shannon Box. I think I think we've got a possibility of seeing it. I, I don't know if we're going to see it times two this this time around. I don't think Shaw and Demello with zero caps, De, Shaw with without even any senior team camp call ups. I don't think we'd see both, but I think there's a shot we could see one of them. First time in 20 years, only second time ever. So uh, that would be uh, an interesting one to monitor. Uh, let's see a. Uh, let's shift to, to some club stuff here. Cause I think some interesting things, um, got a question here, uh, about VAR. It's, it's saying reaction for later in the season, which I think appreciate that'd be a, a better, better time to react. But, uh, how has VAR changed, improved or worsened refereeing in the NWSL compared to previous seasons? Look, it's an adaptation, right? We, I think we knew it would be, uh, personal frustration from the home office, uh, with with the streams and TV feeds that we get, we heard a lot about adding cameras, the investment in that. We still don't have cameras that that provide definitive offside lines or anything close to them, and and we're getting the cameras that the refs are getting. So, you know, it basically creates a situation in which whatever the call on the field is in relation to offside, unless a very rare occurrence in which that camera happens to be right on that line perpendicular to that, you know, hypothetical metaphoric line that's formed for, for offside by the defender, uh, we're not going to have an answer. And therefore, the call on the field is going to stand because it's not going to be definitive. And I, th- I think it's the way these cameras are positioned. I haven't seen that angle yet happen by chance or otherwise. So uh, personal frustration of mine, I think, you know, that's got to be figured out. Obviously, there's no goal line tech, um, which again, similar. We don't have a camera on the goal line looking down the end line. So Again, you're playing with angles that, on a really close call, what do you do about that? Um, having just come back Sunday from seeing the San Diego Gotham game in person, I got a palpable in-person feeling for the real frustration of the delayed offside flag, which is what assistant referees are instructed to do. If it's close, do not put the flag up until the play finishes, and therefore, if the goal is scored and you as the AR were wrong about the offside call everybody played through the goal went in and it can stand whereas if the play is called dead it's dead and there's no changing it um but i didn't have the benefit of replay i haven't gone back and watched the stream on replay so you know i don't know how many were right or wrong i know certainly there were several that that head coach san diego head coach casey stoney thought was wrong but the the delay in some of them um 
from the near side AR in that match was significant, I think unnecessary at times. And then there was so much complaining about it that there was actually then a very quick flag on what looked like from our angle, and I imagine from the not great angle on the stream as well, that on the, the broadcast as well, that looked a bit tighter than any of the others, and the flag went up quickly. So I think that is um, an everyday common occurrence in these games that uh, you could see it. I mean, we sit at Red Bull Arena. The, the media deck is right behind the team benches. I mean, players, coaches, both sides. There was a significant frustration with that flag, the timing of it, and uh, it it's not isolated to that game. So I think that's one to, to figure out. But yeah, definitely want to revisit that um, toward the end of the season, let's call it, because I think that you know there will be things that, that need to be improved. And, and I know that um, I'm generalizing a little bit here, but but there is some conversation let's say uh, among teams internally with the league with the refs about you know what exactly is um, being called what's been right what's been wrong what what is subjective and i mean look we've seen it from opening weekend i was just talking yesterday with somebody about the the june endo goal that wasn't that should have been on opening day against gotham and how that changed the game and you know who knows change the early season trajectory of of a couple teams maybe so um I, i think that's one to watch uh, let's see. There was a question up here. Chris, uh, changes to European Champions League this season have had a huge impact. How close is the CONCACAF Champions League? Are NWCL players suffering due to a lack of games against different types of opponents? Many players will only ever play against the other 11 teams. Look, we talked about this a little bit on the last pod, so I, I won't be too repetitive. I said I think an Open Cup will be more interesting than a Challenge Cup ever will be, and and a CONCACAF Champions League. We need it. How close is it? I don't know. I mean, we've seen it on a roadmap from CONCACAF under previous leadership. Haven't heard a lot about it recently. That roadmap was, I believe, it was pitting it as starting next year. I don't, I don't, you know, I haven't seen many tangible updates on that to say it would happen. I mean, by next year we've got. I mean, we already have Liga. MX Femenil, we have a Canadian Pro League coming, we have USL Super League coming as now a challenger D1 league in the US, so from that alone, you've got a base obviously to be a true Champions League you're going to have to figure out some other things and what does that look like, you know where where are you pulling from, how are you pulling these teams, and and frankly, who's funding it, right because, I mean we talk about financial struggles in the US a bit with teams, or not struggles for some, it shouldn't be struggles now, right it's investment is, is the better term. Um, you know, we talk about those in the U.S. You know, maybe they're covered and, and there's investment there, U.S., Mexico, Canada. You get outside of that and, and you want to be a true Champions League. I mean, you're talking about many of places where you're only talking about amateur teams. The investment's very low. How are you flying? I mean, it's hard to fly between Caribbean countries, as an example. How are these teams flying? Who's funding it? Who's sending a team from who knows where to who knows where else uh, thousands of miles in this confederation right in this this part of the world to you know i, I don't know whatever that whatever that looks like right um, maybe a team from jamaica's in it maybe a team from puerto rico's in it maybe a team from panama's in it are they flying to maybe it's orlando maybe it's vancouver maybe it's new jersey you know, uh, th- there's a lot to figure out there, and I don't know is the, the short answer to when we'll see it, but we need to see it soon, I'd hope. Uh, it's going to require money like a lot of things, though. Uh, let's see. Um, 
Okay, I think last one here that I see uh, from D. Hammy and a good segue from that, that Open Cup note. Um, and I mentioned the Super League. Do you think the USL Super League will aggressively pursue the big names in the NWSL? If so, do you think we'll see NWSL forced to increase its salary cap in order to maintain players? Um, I could go very long about this. I think I have in a past pod, and I've wrote extensively about this, written extensively about this. Um, USL Super League aggressively pursuing big names in the NWSL, I'm not so sure about. I think it could happen at a at an individual level. I think there could be some big names in the Super League, potentially. I, I think it's too early really to speculate about rosters even because we've only just gotten team locations and ownership groups, never mind names and concrete plans, some teams waiting for stadiums, all that. But, I mean, I've mentioned this. I do think that the U.S., to your, to your point at the end there, do you think it'll force NWSL teams to increase salary cap? Absolutely, among many things. I mean, you know, this is going to be – the USL Super League plans to be a Division One league with no salary cap, no draft, fewer of these Byzantine rules that the NWSL lives by based on MLS with, you know, forcing parity. And some teams in the NWSL don't like a lot of these rules, right? So what does that mean for – you know, when the USL comes around and says, hey, we don't use any of these rules. Uh, I mean, I've, re- I've said this already. We are not going to know the answer to this for years. So maybe for years, you all can tell me that I'm the uh, the crazy sort of, um, you know, I-, I don't know. It's not a conspiracy theory, really. It's it's looking factually at what's happened on the men's side. Frankly, plenty of history in soccer and other sports to say league mergers happen when challenges come along. Teams change leagues. Uh, at at minimum, challenger leagues force rule changes, and we're going to see it. What it looks like, I don't know. There's obviously a, a new CBA in place in the NWSL, but salary cap, I think so. Competition for players, maybe. Um, competition for markets, certainly. Huge difference in franchise fees, expansion fees, valuations potentially. Um fall to spring schedule for the USL. NWSL, as I've reported, is considering it. What does that mean? I mean, they were considering it at a time they didn't know about this. So do, do you cons- how does it factor into maybe being direct competition as a fellow D1 league? Do you, do you try to sort of keep the distance as, as a, uh, a spring to fall? A lot of questions that I think the Super League is going to force of, of the NWSL. So uh, a good question, one to watch. We've talked about it a little bit, but uh, we'll, we'll see is probably uh, the, the short-term answer, and we'll have to see how it plays out over the longer term. And then one more, I didn't get a question about this, but I've seen a lot of this, and I'm a little bit worried we're in like another obnoxious, misogynistic, terrible, um, you know, Dallas youth team sort of moment with uh, a lot of what I've seen on the, the wonderful World Wide Web of – um, you know, the U.S. women team at the, the TST tournament and, and losing to Rexham and all of that. And, you know, I've seen a lot of sort of vitriol sort of stuff about misrepresenting this as the U.S. women's national team current as if it's not a, a lot of retired players, very good players in their day, but retired players. And um, no is the answer to all of these silly folks on, online who are, are just casually replying in, in very disgusting ways to uh, things about why the U.S. women can't hang with 
men's players because a bunch of retired Rexham players beat them up. Like, I think I think we have a responsibility here, as as we did back in that that Dallas moment that seems to never go away for for the trolley folks um, to to really understand what that tournament was, who the teams were, which was nothing close to the U.S. women's national team that in six weeks will be in the World Cup. And I imagine most people listening to this podcast are well aware of that and and know that. But in case anybody isn't, in case there's a tell a friend to tell a friend, um, I've seen that. So since we're in mailbag style here, uh, I will ask and answer my own question um, to a degree, or maybe just add a comment. And you know, I've seen I've seen a fair amount of that, and and you know, my my mind goes to the. Uh, the irresponsible nature of the the report about the Dallas youth team from who knows when back then that still gets referenced today and it feels like we are in danger of being in a moment like that again which I think is is if anybody out there can prevent it which I suppose I'm in a position to help do to do exactly that uh, we should because this is 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 silly so um, and and shout out to the Newtown Pride for that that winning that tournament a million dollars for I know they had MASL players and that was a, you know there was a, those guys are pros but Newtown Pride I'm I'm 30 minutes up the road from Newtown which um, obviously uh, the things that happened there 11 years ago are, are terrible and hang with a lot of people nationally and certainly around here um, and and it's you know incorporated into some of that team's name um, million bucks for you know people where you know even dividing that it sounds like by you know 20 and 30,000 whatever that is uh based on the roster size and and donations that's a lot of money for some people in one shot and and just a cool story frankly so that's a good story coming out of TST that that I think is worth talking about um so thanks for joining me on the mailbag uh appreciate it we'll be back in in regular fashion we're coming up on the the US women's national team roster drop we've already got rosters for some teams um very interested to see where that goes. Keep it locked on EqualizerSoccer.com. I will say subscribe if you don't already, EqualizerSoccer.com slash subscribe. We've got a lot of great stuff. We have a lot of great stuff coming in, in the lead up to the World Cup. I will tease some of it for you. Looking back on great legends of past World Cups, we've got some really unique features that I guarantee you you will not read anywhere else uh, about some specific players that is that are coming up and, and players, maybe players that we've mentioned on this this pod here that you'll want to read about um and and a lot of great analysis as we build up to the world cup itself i will be there uh, we'll have a couple of folks there on the ground which in in new zealand and australia is not an easy feat um for for travel financials time anything as as many folks in the media world and even the fan world are have figured out so um keep it locked on equalizersoccer.com subscribe if you don't and and i promise you you will not be disappointed uh, we've been doing this for a long time and and um i'd like to say we're very good at it so uh appreciate it appreciate everything that uh you all sent in for questions thank you for subscribing for those who do thank you for listening and thank you to our producer of this pod jacqueline purdy uh thank you again and we'll be back soon with another episode of the equalizer podcast i'm your host jeff kasuf have a good one